You're listening to a Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2021 forum, where we discuss the long view, a theme that asks how different perspectives on time can affect the growth of our cities. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the M Pavilion podcast. My name is Jen Zielinska, and I had the great pleasure of talking with Liam Young as part of the Living Cities Forum. Liam Young is an Australian-born architect who operates in the spaces between design, fiction, and futures. He is founder of the think tank Tomorrow's Thoughts Today, a group whose work explores the possibilities of fantastic, speculative and imaginary urbanisms. Young also co-runs the Unknown Fields Division, a nomadic research studio that travels on location shoots and expeditions to the ends of the earth to document emerging trends and uncover the weak signals of possible futures. I spoke to Liam ahead of the Living Cities film series, a collaboration with Acme and Open House Melbourne. For the series, Liam has curated a selection of films in response to the theme, The Long View, titled Imagined Cities, Urban Futures, Prototypes Through Film. In our conversation, we discussed everything from how speculative fictions have the potential to equip us with solutions to deal with unintended futures, the collapsing of time, using fiction as a language, and growing digital cities with Amazon bots. I hope you enjoy it. Obviously, the time um, in which we're doing this is just prior to the Living Cities Forum. Um, and we've invited you to uh, participate uh, in the context of providing a series of um, films that relates to the theme of um, the long view and time. Uh, and I guess before we kind of get into that, it'd be a good place to start um, to talking about you and um, your role as a speculative uh, architect and filmmaker. Um, I actually listened to a podcast of you uh, speaking recently and you, uh, it was interesting because you were talking about how as a training as a I guess, conventional architect that you um, have all this capacity to speculate and visualise the world differently and that actually there's kind of almost a waste of, a waste of time doing that. Um, and that in your role now that that perhaps is very different. And so I wondered whether you could kind of speak to the nature of that productivity and time in your work as a speculative architect. Yeah, I mean, so I'm trained as an architect, but, but essentially what I do now is I tell stories with and about space. I, I think deep down architecture really is that. It, it's about crafting stories with space. And that means that now I, I don't design buildings as physical objects, but rather I make films, I do performances and I, and I write, and we build imaginary worlds because in many ways they have acted as sites, um, but unlike a building site, they're sites in which to prototype new scenarios and emerging cultures. So speculative architecture is a spatial condition in which we can play out 
multiple unexpected and unintended futures and their associated um, social and political ideologies. So whether it be you know, speculation around the impacts of driverless cars or um, seamless augmented reality or you know, artificial intelligence in the wild, um, the fictional worlds of speculative architecture um, uh, allow us space in which to give form to our most wondrous technological possibilities or our darkest fears. Um, so these kind of imaginaries we create uh, are not predictions of what's to come. Um, their relationship to time is that they're much more about the moment in which they're created. Um, we make work, we talk about the future as a way to equip up with sufficient knowledge through which we can act in the present moment. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of use the analogy that if, if the future ahead of us is this dark and unknown landscape, that each speculative project or imaginary world or future scenario we illustrate or visualize or narrate is like a torchlight, kind of shining a beam of light onto this landscape. And the more lights we shine, the more illuminated that landscape becomes and the easier it is to plot our course and decide what is the next step that we want to take and, and where do we want to get to on the other side. Yeah, it's funny because it feels like in some ways, exactly as you're saying, like the, the kind of infinite possibilities um, and, the, and the darkest scenarios, it's almost... I think from my understanding, it's, it's all, it feels like it's almost, is there, is it a big panic button in some ways um, that is being, is being set off? Um, or is it almost a, a kind of, you know, actually can you sit with, sit comfortably in the present knowing that there is all this possibility? Like it's, it's Yeah, it's, it's a bit of both really. Like, you know, the work that we'll see in the, in the films, um, the work that I create is, you know, sometimes described as dystopian. In other contexts, it's also described as utopian. I like to think that it's both utopian and dystopian at the same time, or at least it sits ambiguously somewhere along that spectrum. So it's not about panic. It's more about trying to um, play out multiple scenarios um, so that we may be more prepared and more engaged with what might be coming rather than just blindly kind of standing in line um, waiting for the next iPhone to be released. You know, we, we can be more active consumers and producers of the future that we want to have um, rather than just being um, sold it. Um, which is generally what happens um, by the latest kind of, I don't know, techno-solutionist narrative that might come out of California. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not about panic, um, neither is it about pointless, blind optimism that, that is naive at its best. Um, it's about complication, you know, and, and trying to talk about the ways that the world we're in and the world we're heading towards is tricky and it's full with contradiction and complexity because so are we, you know, like a lot of the technologies that we normally associate with certain science fiction tropes 
um, are not solutions to anything. You know, it's not like Elon Musk has cracked the electric car and you know, now we no longer have to worry about the climate crisis because um, you know, we're not putting fossil fuels into the air anymore. There, there is no magic bullet, no technology is a solution to the problems we've created for ourselves. They're just extensions and exaggerations of who we are. And in that sense, they're both equal parts fear and wonder because so are we. They um, can be the most extraordinary um, possible futures that are set in motion. Um, but they can also be misused and um, uh, deployed for quite scary ends because um, we both we do both of these things as well. Um, so again, like um, we try and make work that is that will tell both sides of those stories and will talk about a complex future that we're moving into, um, uh, so that we can. Um, yeah, be more strategic in the way that we act now so that potentially we can try to scaffold the sorts of futures that we want to be living in and um, prevent and uh, uh, regulate against the futures that we want to run away from. And so um, in that kind of context of thinking about uh, these futures, do you see the role of time in them? There's a point where I think about things like Planet City um, and uh, it seems that it doesn't have a context of time, like and it's the future, and but, you know, it does feel removed from a certain existence and it makes me think in it, like, has space and time collapsed? And I wondered if you could speak to that. Yeah, we, we try not to put um, definitive timelines and dates on any of the, the narratives that we tell. Because again, I, I, I think, you know, um, prediction is, is just a side effect of, of science fiction in many ways. Warren Ellis, the comic author, um, d describes it as such. Um, so, you know, the irony is that 1984, you know, a definitive time-based um, dystopian novel is actually not about 1984 at all. It's about 1948, the year in which it was written. Um, so, you know, putting times on things almost in a way creates a criteria by which we can um, like either tick the box, yes, we got it right, or no, we got it wrong. Yes, we got it right, but we we're 10 years too late. And the success of all these works, I think, um, is not about that at all. You know, the fact that we live in a sort of Big Brother-esque social media cameras and surveillance is all around us uh, world is not because Orwell was, um, you know, correct and got it right. Um, quite the opposite, in a way. It's a, it's a sign that we didn't listen and that, um, you know, maybe the, the narrative wasn't deployed with the force and power that it should, because really what Orwell was talking about was certain trends that he saw emerging in the politics of the time he was writing. And it was a, a cautionary tale. It was a warning sign. We've, we've got to stop this. Otherwise, this is where we're going. Um, so the accuracy of prediction is in many ways um, symptomatic of the failure of some of these fictions um, to not capture the imagination in such a way that would prevent them from, being, from coming true. 
So, um, yeah, we, we, our relationship to time in these narratives um, is trying to be ambiguous because, again, that's, that we, we don't want to locate those futures because it just kind of, you know, intuitively means that we're trying to judge them against that prediction and that timeline. Um, so, you know, just a notional near future is sort of what we talk about, that, you know, it's somewhere between a 10, 20 or 30 year cycle we don't make like hundred or thousand year into the future stories, you know, that's the work of Star Wars and starry spaceship skies and laser beams and, um, you know, the work of fantasists and um, escapist narratives. That's not what we're interested in, but, but mm -hmm. near futures that both feel like they could almost be today, um, uh, but not quite or that are desperately familiar, but maybe there's just one or two things that have the volume turned up on them, we find that is the sweet spot for these sort of speculative narratives, which I guess I'm defining different from fantasy narratives. And I guess it's, I mean, here, here's me asking about the predictions of the future and, you know, we're sitting in uh, lockdown number five. Uh, that was really not predicted. <laughs> and and it, I guess it's also, you know, thinking about being in those silos of how you think that time will change. And it's something we're talking about a lot with Living Cities Forum in particular and the idea that actually we're all going to be moving at different paces as is the world. And it's, you know, there's this kind of void in between of really understanding the speed at which any of those things can be predicted or, or kind of propel or, or slow down, in fact. Um, and so through, um, through uh, obviously, unknown fields division and SIARC, there's there is, you're working internationally in um, all the areas of the world uh, from landscapes and outposts and mining fields. And, you know, I can only imagine the kind of time differences that you're also dealing with there. Like, is there, does that inform your work in any way when you're kind of, uh, thinking about your existence in LA versus kind of what's happening on the other side of the world and the time zones. Is that, does that contribute to kind of any of your creative thinking? Um, only in the sense that what COVID has done and, and the, the necessity to work remotely has flattened all of those relationships. Um, so one part of my practice is these these features and these narratives that we've been talking about, which which I produce here in my production company in Los Angeles. But all of these speculative stories begin work in our documentary projects, which is a documentary studio that I run with another architect, Kate Davies, in in London. And um, what Unknown Fields would do in its documentary work is travel around the world to, uh, I guess we could describe as kind of um, sites of futures in the present tense or you know, sites that contain within them sort of weak signals of possible futures um, and uh, document them in real time. Um, uh, you know, and, and Google research, looking things up in Wikipedia, we would define within unknown field as being entirely insufficient and you need to get out there, get out into the world and meet people and talk to people who have been devoting their lives to the investigation of a particular context. And then we use our privilege um, as storytellers from cities like London and Los Angeles 
to broadcast the narratives that we capture in those places to, to, to audiences that may not normally um, have access to them. Um, so we're in the past, in the before times, we're very much aware of how long it takes to get somewhere, you know, flying from London to a particular location, then getting on a bus, then a train, then a boat, then another bus, then a truck driving through the Madagascan jungle on a road that has no business being described as such. Um, you feel distance and you feel time in an extraordinary way. Um, now that same relationship might be had not by sitting in a tent together, but by, um, you know, jumping on the Zoomscape. And the difference being that, you know, one person's got a sunny backdrop behind them as I do right now, another person has a nighttime backdrop and the lights are on in their room instead of the sun shining through the window. Those kind of surface differences are the only ones that start to um, create friction now. Um, you know, as long as you can find a point where multiple schedules align, the nature of time um, is flat on the Zoomscape um, and um, you don't feel distance anymore because everything is condensed into the strange square of a Zoom window. Um, it's, yeah, it's very true. And I feel like um, it's it's a surreal existence in some ways and one perhaps that you probably predicted um, or speculated upon. Um, and even when we think about the dynamic this year for living cities and, you know, it's some of the speakers that we have with us uh, have said that actually they won't, they won't travel again. Uh, for conversations and it's been interesting that with the possibilities of Zoom that that is a stance that someone can make about their kind of place in the world and saying actually the their existence in time is only going to be in real time when it's at present and when they can travel there in a way that is environmentally um, kind of more responsible than getting on a plane and traveling however many thousands of kilometers uh, to be somewhere for an hour. And then it's kind of also, you know, you weigh up the time in that context really of someone being present for that time versus their, I guess, the kind of economy of their move and, and the environmental economy that surrounds that. Um, you mentioned, or we kind of referenced earlier, um, unknown fields and uh, the research lab at the Architectural Association. And I wondered whether... Uh, you could talk potentially about the role of um, pedagogy and, and kind of education within your practice or working with students. Yeah, so, so now um, I'm, I'm based here in Los Angeles and uh, I run a postgraduate master's program in fiction entertainment at uh, SciArc, which is a, you know, one of the world's renowned architecture schools based here in downtown LA. Um, and I came out here, I guess, you know, for two reasons. One, obviously my work was becoming more related to the film industry and, you know, despite the fact that nothing gets literally made here in LA, every meeting and all the pre-production work that we're involved in as world builders happens here um, to this, you know, where we needed to be. But, but also because I wanted to create a program 
that would help students like I was coming out of a architecture school in Queensland, Australia, knowing that they didn't want to necessarily practice traditional forms of architecture, but knowing that they wanted to engage with the contemporary reality of cities and the way that we use and occupy space and the way that space shapes people and communities. Um, what is a master's program that someone might do that helps them to, to make that transition from one mode of architectural thinking to the application of that same thinking in something like an entertainment context or in film or video games or television. Um, and I guess I looked around and, and didn't really see anything that would do that. Um, I got here myself from decades of hustle, chance and coincidence. Um, but if someone was plotting that course, how could they shortcut that hustle? Um, uh, so essentially I made a program, um, I guess, because, you know, it, it's a year long program. And in that time we can transition people with various backgrounds in architecture, design, urban design, landscape. Um, we can equip them with a certain skill set, um, help to evolve their way of spatial, of spatial thinking into a context that um, is legible within the entertainment industry, for instance. And, and that's what we do. We, we essentially support students um, to build career paths as world builders um, in art departments in Hollywood, as production designers, as documentary filmmakers, as directors, um, as uh, video game designers, level designers, environment artists, um, as uh, media artists or as design researchers, um, uh, or sometimes people take the skill sets that they learn in, in, in our context and they go back into the traditions of the architecture discipline, but they do so to make different kinds of work, work that's kind of more research orientated um, uh, or work that, um, you know, is more conceptual. Um, so I'm, I guess as, a, as an educator, I'm interested in being real about the fact that most people who graduate with an architecture degree don't necessarily go on to work in an architecture office making buildings. The reality of that kind of profession um, to a large extent no longer exists, or at least is on fire and is remaking itself. Um, but architects operate in all different kinds of ways. You know, architects as politicians, as um, storytellers, as writers, as planners, as curators, as educators, um, uh, as filmmakers. Um, and you know, that all those things require certain training beyond um, what we might pick up in architecture school. It's not to say that an architect can do everything or any of these things um, without that. Um, but, um, you know, I think as a filmmaker, the work that I make is different because I have an architecture background. Um, I think I make work and films that someone who comes out of a traditional film school could never make or probably never would want to. Um, and I think that those types of hybrid forms of practice are really valuable and important right now um, because they have the scope and the capacity to engage with contemporary issues that are really meaningful, contemporary issues of you know, radical climate change, systemic racism, 
um, uh, massive inequality. You can't solve or deal with all these things with a building necessarily. Um, uh, but, 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 but space is complicit in all of those things. Mm. Um, so what are the forms of practice that allows one to be relevant um, and to, and to you know, act um, against some of these things? And that's what we try and do at, at SIARC. It's so, no, it's, it's um, really brilliant. And um, yeah, as you kind of describe those different practices, it's something that I just think is so valuable to have the different sides of your brain being engaged with, with different people from kind of, you know, from different cohorts of schools of education and place. And it's, yeah, I guess we're going for, um, you know, Liam Young for president is where we're at. <laughs> it's like, it's with the it would be a terrible idea. But, uh, but but you're you're flattering me. Thank you. Well, I just think it's the kind of com combination of people that we've you know we see time and time again that make a difference because you have, um, like you say, that kind of training that can be applied in different schools of thought, and it's challenged and um, it's a very healthy thing. Um, so so the, to the films. Um, so you've curated these with a series of faculty members from SIARC as well as um, students and kind of a network of um, people that you're working with. Um, we've asked you to curate them in response to the Living Cities Forum of the theme of the long view and time. Um, and I'd love to kind of hear from you about um, who those filmmakers are and your, your decision around um, curating them. Yeah, we, we, I, I've tried to bring together a, a list of short films that come kind of out of the SIARC fiction entertainment ecosystem in some way or another. Um, so sometimes there'll be um, films kind of incubated and developed within the program. Sometimes they'll be from graduates um, who have gone on to, to do other kinds of music videos and make other kinds of films after, after they leave us. Um, and then, you know, a big part of the program is trying to be real about helping students network and, and build relationships and collaborative practices with people working out in industry. So we bring in a whole lot of guest mentors from, from Los Angeles and, and, you know, the broader entertainment industry across the world. Um, and I've selected some films um, from some of those mentors and, and, and collaborators and guests on the program. Um, but really what I tried to do was collect a series of imagined worlds together um, to talk about the ways that film is an important and critical site of world building. Um, uh, you know, all cities in some form are fictions. You know, their, their literal edges are nebulous um, and their physical definition is in endlessly being written but oftentimes the boundaries of, of cities and urban spaces come into focus as shared narratives. And in many ways, the fiction of a city weighs as much as its physical shadow or its physical self. They are lived and occupied. These fictions are read and watched with consequence and meaning. Um, so I, I put together a list of, of films which are, um, trying to explore that idea. They're trying to be telling stories about cities and space and imagined worlds um, uh, because they are, you know, sites through which we can you know, talk about ideas that are important. 
um, you know, fiction is this extraordinary shared language. It's, it's, it's how our culture shares and disseminates ideas. So what we're trying to do with these works is, is sort of encode within them important ideas about who we are, who we might want to be, um, and the spaces and, and cities and contexts um, uh, that, that, that those people and stories are contained within. Um, so that's broadly the, you know, the, 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 the idea that was guiding me in the selection. Um, you know, we, we have a, a whole range of stories. We, we have um, uh, some, some short films from, from developed from, from students, um, one of which is uh, Earth Mother Sky Father um, by Corday Henry. Um, which is, uh, I guess, best described as a music film, um, which is telling story about um, a relationship to rare earth mining in, in the Congo um, and speculating on a future context where, you know, um, we might reimagine our relationship to resources. Currently, you know, these elements, which are so precious and contained in every piece of technology we own, our laptop, our phone, um, uh, and so on, um, are sort of ripped out of the ground in the most efficient and cheapest way possible, um, and then shipped off to, to Western countries to be refined and developed and, and translated into profit, um, rarely leaving that profit in the ground back in in um, you know, um, the Congo, for instance, where a lot of the, the, the world's richest supply of, of rare earth comes from. Um, so this is imagining a different relationship that, that the Congo might develop to its resources and, and imagines a new God and ceremony of rare earth um, and sort of narrates a dance um, with, uh, you know, with this mineral and with this ceremony. Um, uh, we have another student, um, uh, Miriam La, who, who who just finished her film, which which is um, it's an animated short film premiered at uh, Rotterdam and um, at Slamdance um, here in the U.S. Um, and it's telling a story of a post-climate future um, uh, where we've kind of retreated to live almost in kind of Buckminster Fuller-esque domes. Um, uh, and um, it asked the question, what kind of life are we willing to lead? What kind of sacrifices are we going to make? Um, ultimately, it's an extraordinarily dark and dystopian tale of what, world, what the world might look like um, if we continue without change. Um, uh, um, so it's, yeah, a, a strange and surreal story about... Um, uh, yeah, the ultimate choice of, you know, do we live with the consequences of climate change um, or are we willing to change our ways? Um, uh, there's another short film by, um, uh, again, produced by a student in the program, Vivian Komati, um, which is set in an Amazon fulfillment center the size of the city. Um, it's, uh, it's set on Valentine's Day. And a young girl um, enters the fulfillment center in search of a lost package. Um, it's a city organized by um, the logics of logistics. And um, uh, you know, this, this city has been grown digitally by Vivian using the same algorithms that, that Amazon used to, to sort and organize its products on its shelves. And um, uh, it's, it's a city occupied not by people, but by drones, um, conveyor belts, logistic bots, 
uh, and goods um, waiting to be boxed. Um, and this girl enters, um, gets lost, and decides um, to set up camp and and to live out her life amongst the machines. Um, uh, we know the short film um, uh, Fugu and Taku um, by Ben West. Ben West is a um, the creative directors of Frame Store here in Los Angeles. Frame Store is the Academy Award-winning um, uh, visual effects studio that's you know developed the effects for films like Gravity and. Marvel films and so on. Um, ben um, is a mentor in the program that's come to us, you know, for maybe the last four or five years, um, a great supporter of the, the program. Um, he's Australian, um, originally trained as an architect in Australia before moving into the visual effects industry. Um, and he has um, a very charming film um, set in Tokyo um, about a Japanese salaryman who, um, uh, eats um, fugu, which is the poisonous fish, and then turns into a fugu. Um, uh, and really, it's a buddy flick because his friend is jealous that um, uh, now the salaried man is getting all the girls because he's turned into a fish. Um, but really, it's a story about um, relationships, about um, a relationship to nature, but a relationship between people in a strange and unforgiving um, and intense world, such as you know, the contemporary worker context of, of, of Tokyo. Um, uh, uh, there's another short film by Andrew Thomas Wang, again, another um, mentor that we're so grateful to have involved in the program. Um, Andrew is a director who is most known for, for directing, you know, a huge amount of Bjork video clips, um, has an extraordinarily distinct visual style that's somewhere between visual effects and puppetry. Um, most recently um, uh, produced the award-winning cellophane video um, for um, FKA Twigs. Um, uh, he's now directing a new feature and a part of that was a move into um, a kind of more narrative filmmaking space with a, with a piece called Kiss of the Rabbit God. And um, it's really a story about um, the ways that um, uh, mythology um, uh, plays a role in the modern world, in this case, um, uh, the way that mythology kind of wraps up um, uh, um, queer relationships, and um, uh, and it's this—it's a surreal film that shifts back and forth between a story of love um, and a story of um, you know, ancient Chinese mythology. Um, and I can keep on going on and on and on, but. Um, you know, there, there's some films that are short, some films that are long, but really what I'm trying to, to make um, the next hour or so feel like is a sort of a, a speculative safari um, through a collection of imagined worlds. And I hope everyone enjoys it. Um, I think that there um, is no doubt of that from uh, digital Amazon-grown cities and Fugos and rare earth mining. I think um, the eclecticism of, of films is um, quite um, quite incredible. And um, thank you so much for um, putting them together. Um, we really appreciate it and uh, can't wait to see the insightful trinkets of information and speculations that um, are going to be present without them. So thank you so much. Cool. Uh, looking forward to it. I hope you enjoy the films.
You're listening to a Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2021 forum, where we discuss the long view. A theme that asks how different perspectives on time can affect the growth of our cities. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the M Pavilion podcast. Thank you.